0: As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me?
1: So on this last Sunday of 2020, I thought it would be appropriate to speak on Psalm 42. And psalm 42 is a passage, a psalm that speaks primarily of a person who is, is really in, in uh, anguish and wondering, is God going to answer? And it really is the concept of waiting. Because waiting is one of the most difficult challenges that we face as people. It's so hard to do, especially when we are expectant for an answer and we long for it. We want it. This is a time of waiting for all of us. After hearing about the new COVID strain in the UK, you know, a thought occurred to me and perhaps it occurred to you as well. The question, what if COVID never ends? what if this is, from this day forward, the normative part of how we live this life on earth? Because what has been sort of the purveying thought throughout this whole season has been, let's just bear up with this for one year. And then, you've heard the phrase, we can get back to normal. But what if this is our new normal? What if we can never get on with our lives. We can't travel. We won't be able to meet with friends and family during holiday seasons anymore. There'll be these intermittent lockdowns all throughout the year, even in our church building. What if this is what we face always and worship is like this? What if the new strain brings us back to square one and the vaccine becomes completely ineffective? I know that all sounds so bleak and you're probably wondering, boy, that." I hope this whole message is not like that. But that's what Psalm 42 is like. It asks those questions. It asks the question, can I trust in God? Can I wait upon him even when there is no outlook of everything being all right? Waiting is hard because it causes us to take our lives out of our own hands and place it into someone else's? As Christians, we believe that means in God's hands. As a secularist, you might say, well, that's fate, chance. But in the end, it's the same thing from the perspective of your life is not in your own hands. It's not under your control. And if we focus too much on this, we really can become debilitated by it almost to a point of emotional paralysis, where no longer can you move forward and on with life. So Psalm 42 has those elements, but it doesn't stay there. It moves forward. It progresses. And I'm thankful for Psalm 42 because despite the deep inner turmoil of the psalmist and all of the external circumstances that make him incredibly disturbed and distressed, there is a waiting on God that gives him hope and gives him the ability to press forward despite all that he is experiencing and facing. So I want to look at this waiting by examining two aspects. First is the causes of sorrows. And then secondly, the cure of waiting. So just two things, the causes of sorrows and the cure of waiting. First, we're going to look at one cause of these sorrows, which is an assumed abandonment of God. This we see in verses 1 through 4 and 6 through 10. I'm going to read this again, verses 1 through 2 and 6 through 10. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mitzer. Deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. The psalmist compares himself to a deer, probably a deer running for its life, and in the midst of it, in its dreadful thirst, he's longing and searching for water. And if, if you've ever been in a situation where maybe like this deer, you have been at a desperate end, wanting answers, but not being able to find them. And in that sense, there's a desperation for God, even longing for him, looking towards him. And perhaps some of you are there right now, waiting, wondering, is God going to answer? Is it going to be faithful to me? Sometimes in our lives, there's so many instances. It could be people, circumstances, or just even our own souls where there's this overwhelming sense of worry and grief and pain. And I do think that this year, more than most, has certainly provided that for us, at least at certain points of the year. The psalmist is in this place. And he also writes in verse 2 this question, when shall I come and appear before God? The word when and other words that we see in the Psalms, how long, they remind us of one of the key elements of faith in God, which is trusting in God's timing. In the point where God actually dives deep into your life, And oftentimes unexpectedly. And whenever you see words such as when, how long, it, those are really words of trust, dependence. And it's also words of waiting, which is so difficult. Again, think about your expectation and my expectation regarding this virus. In our hearts, we expect it to end. No later than next year. But if it doesn't, what if it becomes more difficult, more trying? The question then becomes, is God still good? Is he still merciful? Does he still love you? Is he still in control? These are some of the same questions that the psalmist is asking. And he's probably asking due to very difficult people, possibly people who are actually trying to take his life. He's in danger And so will you trust God in the midst of that? And once you place your hope and trust in Jesus, and if you say, Lord, I do trust you, I give everything over to you, I I relinquish my control over my life, and I give it into your hands, you know what God's response is to you? It's not, okay, everything for the rest of your life will be great. It'll be easy. That's exactly the opposite of what happens. When you say, I trust you, then God says, I will give you then more opportunities to trust me. That's the reality of our relationship with him is that he wants us to depend on him. And he knows that our inclination is that if we only have prosperity, we actually turn away from him. So he places into our lives regular opportunities. You might say, if you've ever seen a NASCAR race or a Formula One race And there are those pit stops. Eventually, no matter how well engineered the car is, it has to stop for tire changes and all the other different mechanical changes and things that have to be changed so that a person can – that car can go again to its full efficiency. And so, too, we also need that type of regular pit stop in our lives. And that usually means – Trial. Challenge. You know, you would think that the best thing for your body would be rest. And it is. It's, it's really important for our physical bodies to have rest. That we're not always active or exercising or working out. But too much rest can kill you. All you need to do is go to the hospital. And see what a lot of the nurses do or now they have machines that actually, uh, whether it's the bed or different lifts that will move a patient over and over again because to simply lay down on your back for a long period of time without any movement at all can destroy your body. I mean, isn't that interesting that your body, while it needs rest, cannot have too much rest. While it needs to sometimes just be immobile, it cannot be too immobile. Having too much rest can kill you, and so too, trust in God is the same. Trust in God means that you have to have challenges and trials in your life to strengthen the muscles of your heart, of your spirit, so that you will even more so trust in him. Because God knows that our inclination is that when we have no trials in our lives, no difficulties, no challenges, which, by the way, is what we all want in some way. We think that that's what we need the most. But to live that life, to seek prosperity, safety, comfort, all those things, it keeps us actually from God. And the enemy knows this. He wants you to pursue these things. Peter describes it in 2 Peter 2.22, the dog returns to its own vomit. It's an old proverb. And it's the idea that we just have this notion that as long as we pursue the benefit of ourselves, everything will be okay. When God places a trial in your life and you learn from it and you grow, that's an opportunity to remember blessings. But Our natural tendency after that is to forget that trial and how God delivered and then to say, I don't want to trust in God anymore. We go back to our own vomit, our own spiritual vomit. And so when we cannot trust God, we're told in verses 6 through 7 the consequence. We become downcast. Let me first qualify this. I'm not saying by feeling downcast that we do not trust God. There are times due to physiological, psychological factors where one might have a penchant towards melancholy and depression that is not necessarily caused by a lack of trusting in God. So there are those instances where someone can experience feeling physically, emotionally down and depressed and yet still be trusting in God. And sometimes that is biological. But clearly we see, according to Psalm 42, that when there is a failure to trust God, there is a subsequent reaction to that, which is melancholy. It's not always, but certainly that happens throughout our lives. And every person, everyone, whether you are regularly a person of melancholy, or once in a while, or maybe once in a very seldom moment, This is still the inherent response that we have when we fail to trust God. Look at how the psalmist describes such feelings in verse 7. There's literally and figuratively a sinking feeling, deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, All, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I've put my head under a waterfall twice in my life, maybe three times. Once was in Africa. Once, I was in New Jersey with my uh, my family. We went underneath a waterfall and through, and it was actually re- really cool. But what's interesting is that from far away, a waterfall doesn't sa- feel that strong. It doesn't sound that big. I mean, unless you're next to Niagara Falls, really, most waterfalls are not that big until you put your head under it. And when you put your head under a waterfall, you know what happens? You can't breathe. The water is relentless. It just pushes your head. Physically, it's actually taxing on your neck. The power of water, even a small amount of water, is pretty tremendous. And so sticking your head under a waterfall, you just feel as though you cannot get your head up at all. And that's what the psalmist wants us to keep in mind when we have this feeling of melancholy due to a failure of a lack of trust in God. We just cannot keep our head up. It seems to overwhelm us. Now, what's interesting about this verse, if you look at it, the, the pronoun that describes these words, your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves. Who is this your that the psalmist is talking about? Talking about God. In other words, God is the one who has placed these trials into the psalmist's life, and he knows it. He's not thinking it's some random chance event that is happening in his life that's causing him trouble. He ultimately knows that God is the one who is sovereign, who is Lord, who is in control, and the psalmist is wrestling with God. He's really wondering and is desperate for for survival and knows that God is the hope. He's the answer because they're his waterfalls, his breakers, his waves, and there's a, a deepness. Uh, if you've ever gone to an ocean and perhaps gone snorkeling or gone deep underneath the water, there, the hollowness of that water when you're underneath for a, quite a long time is, is very menacing, threatening. It feels You just feel so small and so helpless in the midst of the depths of the water. And so the psalmist wants us to get to that place, to understand that when we go through trial and trouble, it can feel like that. You can't get your head up. There's a menacing aspect to it. There's a depth to it, and it's despairing. The The fact of the matter is is that God is both the ultimate cause of our trials, ultimately, not always primarily, but even secondarily or tertiary, there is God is sovereign and he knows, but these very trials are also what we need in our lives as well. And to just to help you to understand that, think of the different things that are, are blessings to us, but as well, sometimes our greatest trials, our careers, our provisions of the Lord, the things that we do for a living that allow us to make money to support our families and to have a life. Those are blessings. But sometimes our greatest worries and fears and struggles are at work. So we have both the blessings and the challenges coming together. We have friends who are such a blessing to us, but sometimes they can really be our most difficult challenges of our lives, our spouses, our children. Think of all of the different blessings. There is rarely a blessing in this world where it is only a blessing. It is a blessing because it's fully orbed into both giving us a lot of comfort and joy, but sometimes the challenge to our own, it it pricks our sinfulness, our idols, and it pulls it out, and sometimes, boy, does it hurt. But that causes us, it should cause us to not be sinking in self-pity, but to looking at the God who is faithful and who's showing us we... He's trying to teach us something about ourselves. So may you know that these trials that even the Lord brings, while challenging, it's still comforting to know that God is in control. I hope you can see that. It's so critical to fighting that melancholy spirit is to know that God ultimately, and I know it doesn't mean you don't grieve or mourn when there's loss, when there's sorrows, It is comforting to know that in the midst of the sorrows, God is still there. He hasn't hidden his face from you. In fact, you are Coram Deo. You are before his face. The psalmist has it right then. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I love that part because when you're in that place, when is it most difficult? Nighttime. Because physically, it's just the depiction of your own soul when you look and see everything just seems dark, bleak. In that place, his song is with me. When I think of song, I think of sometimes the morning bird that sings its beautiful song. And if you've ever, I remember when we were in Africa, the birds there are, they're different. They're just so loud. If you actually are joining us for lockdown conversations, just watch because George is a, he's speaking, I think it's 6.30 in the morning, 5.30 or 6.30, and the, sometimes the birds are so loud, I could barely hear him. But that's the thing about those morning bird songs. When they sing, it it shows the dawn, that the day has begun. And what the Lord is saying is so often, as Zephaniah 3, 17 says, God will sing a song over you. He's singing over you. And here we see the same ideas that in the midst of the darkness, at night, his song is with you. It's meant to say that God's very loving presence is right by your side. He's not letting you go. And you don't need to fear. You don't need to be afraid. You can trust that he's there. And he's not going to let you go. He is steadfast. Another great, beautiful word that describes who God is. His steadfast love, his chesed love, his loving kindness. It's better than life. He will not fail, but we have to trust him. We have to believe in him. We have to, and the way that we trust him is we wait on him. One of the most important means by which we show trust is to wait, which is so hard for us. The second cause of these sorrows are all the adversaries, as we see in verse 3 and 9 and 10. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And then why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These adversaries, they are opposed to you. You know, the very name Satan, literally in Hebrew means adversary. So in other words, you have a lot of Satans in your life. And what they do is they taunt you by undermining your faith in God, your trust in him. They might be college professors. Maybe they're loved ones. Parents, an atheistic brother or sister. Maybe there are former pastors who are now, you know, now social media atheists, and their whole desire is to try to get you Christians to follow their path of saying, "I once believed this, but that was all a lie." So here's why you not to believe this. Maybe you have friends who are doing the same thing. Church friends even, this persistence, and look at the persistence of this type of taunting. All the day long, they say, where is your God? There's an attempt to rob you of joy and trust and faith, if that's possible. It really is satanic. It reminds me of the mocking that Jesus faced at Jesus' trial, when they would slap him and mock him in Matthew twenty-six, twenty-eight, and say, prophesy to us. Oh, Christ, who is that that struck you? So this has been happening from the beginning of time where, according to Psalm 10, even the fool says there is no God, and they go and try the best they can to get you to turn away from God. We have these adversaries. You should, you will experience this if you trust in Christ. So then with these two causes know that there is a cure. There is a cure for these sorrows, and it's the cure of waiting. Look at verses 5 again and 6. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The first cure that we look at is this cure that the psalmist does, which is to explore his heart. It's not easy, but it is a critical part of actually coming out of the deep, of the waters breaking over you. It's not easy because when you're in the midst of it, when your head is stuck under the waterfall and there's all this burden just flying all over you, to be able to come out and actually see perspective, you almost feel as though it's impossible you can't do it. It has to be done. You have to fight for that. And I know, you might say, but when you're in the midst of that, you don't have a desire to fight. I get it. But you still have to, even with the smallest of efforts and energies. We don't explore our heart with condemnation. But at the core, there has to be at least the question of why. And then the desire to want a real answer. You would think that for the psalmist, this question of why it would be directed at God. But notice it isn't directed at God. He actually directs it at himself. Why are you cast down, oh, my soul? He could have said, why are you like this to me, God? Why did you do this to me? Because that's our natural instinct and tendency is to say, why God? But I love the fact that the psalmist shows us that we have to actually first look to ourselves and ask ourselves so really get into the habit of asking yourself what's going on self why are you so downcast and the way you start to battle the big flare-ups of melancholy is to be regularly doing this over even the smallest points of your life to be a regularly active Inquisitor of your own soul. Again, not to the point of condemnation and self-pity, but to the point where you are questioning what's going on. Why do I feel angry? Why do I fear? Why am I irritated even a little bit? Every single aspect of it. Now, again, the danger of this is you become so introspective that it becomes in and of itself something that controls you. But it's there's a, a there's a, a level that you can get to at least understanding your own motives. And the person who doesn't have any clue as to why they do what they do really misses out on God's grace. I love the way how Jack Miller describes how he processed his own desire for change. He was struggling with anger. And his wife said confronted him and said, You know, you really, really a person who struggles with anger. The the challenge with that is that when your wife says something about you, you just tend to dismiss it like that. Or your husband, you might say, oh, that's just you. That's just your problem. But what he did was he decided to ask not just his wife, but five other people. And one of them was his secretary. And when he went to his secretary, his secretary said, he said, you know, he humbled himself and said, can you tell me what's what's one area of struggle you think I have? And you know what his, his secretary said? Anger. And he was shocked. What? That's called a blind spot, right? But how do you grow behind a blind spot, beyond it, is you ask different people, not one person, because one person might have it in for you. They just totally misread you. But if you ask five people, loved ones, and then maybe other trusted people in your life, and they all say the same thing, And if you say, no, no, you all got it wrong. You all got it wrong. You know, honestly, it's probably you. It's not all those five, ten people who say, I see this in your life. The scary part is for us to actually want to do that, to actually open ourselves up to that. But that's what we have to do to guard ourselves so that all of the mess doesn't just come piling onto us And then we sink. We're under the waterfall. So the regularity of understanding our own soul really helps us to guard against that. So that you're not in a place where you're so overwhelmed that you can't even ask or think about how I can get out of this. Know also that Satan is warring against your soul. He is actively engaged to get you to that place where you do not trust God. He wants you to give up. He wants you to turn away. The the word here, cast down, is literally a physical bowing down. I mean, if If you've ever been in a state of depression or melancholy, literally, sometimes you can't even get out of bed. And you just feel almost like your back is hunched over. People can sense it. You can sense it, perhaps. And... It's so difficult because this person is in that place. The psalmist is in that place. We can't just kick away that feeling. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says on this subject. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself, question yourself, and preach to yourself. You must remind yourself who God is and what God has done and what God has promised to do. This is the essence of the treatment in a nutshell. We must understand that this self of ours, this other man within us, has got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Turn on him. Speak to him. Remind him of what you know. So rather than listening to him and allowing him to drag you down depress you, you must take control. So you have this other man, this other woman. And this other person is doing everything he can to get you to turn away from God. And to just hunker down. You must take control. The second cure is to wait on saving God. What does the psalmist plead with himself? He pleads this beautiful progression in verse 4. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hope in God. Hope in the God who is eternally satisfying who will never leave you nor forsake you. Who is perfectly trustworthy. Who is your son and shield. Who is your fortress. Who is your hiding place. Who is your deliverer. Who is your salvation, your strength. Your f- he is the God of the impossible. He is the creator. He is the father. You start there. You remember something to really consider is write out all the different names of God the different descriptions of God in your life. Put it into your Bible. And when you feel this way, go back and look and read and dwell and meditate on every one of those descriptors, those modifiers of God. Because those modifiers are meant to show you that God is faithful to you and he is able to save. There's a reason why it says God's arm is strong enough to save. It's not because God has a physical arm. It's because that arm can break open the hardness of hearts or the most difficult of circumstances. And he's able to do that. He is able to save. So how do you hope in God? The psalmist says the answer to how we hope in God is to remember God's past act of salvation in your life. Look at verses 4 and 5. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. I remember you. See, both times the word remember is repeated in verse 4 and 5. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mitzahar. In other words... What the psalmist is saying, wherever he's gone, he remembers God. He remembers all the different ways that God has provided for him, how he's blessed him, how he's been faithful to him, how he saved him through times of trial. So right next to the words that describe God in Scripture, in his character, write down all the different ways that God has provided for you, protected you, blessed you, saved you, guarded you, kept you, answered prayers. Write them all down from when you were the littlest of child to now and put that into your Bible as well. So whenever you are in a position of trial and challenge, you can go back to that and say, I remember. I remember who you are, as scripture shows, I remember what you have done for me. We need that. Sometimes we so readily forget God. It's the very reason why God in the book of Deuteronomy throughout Scripture, especially in the Psalms as well, constantly goes back to the Exodus for the Israelites. Because what was their problem? They were having really difficult times in the desert. They couldn't find food and water. And they started grumbling and complaining and saying, why, why do we do this? Why do we follow this Moses? Let's go back to Egypt. Oh yeah, Egypt was this place where it had leeks and cucumbers and all these things. And what they forgot was all the lashings that they received as former slaves. being Having their liberties completely taken away. They forgot all that. They forgot the fact that they cried out to God for over 400 years. So, because they forgot, They always want to go back to their vomit. Every dog goes back to its vomit. When you forget, you go back to the vomit. And what this, what the Psalmist is saying is, I need to remember. So you need to do all you can to remember. That's why we gather every week. That's why you're in discipleship groups. But sometimes when you're really sinking, you don't even want to talk to people. You forget what was preached on Sunday. And sometimes you just need your own list to say, oh, yeah. So I really want to encourage you, exhort you. I'm not just saying, hey, just consider doing this. Do this. Write these two things down. Stick it into your Bible. And whenever you have these problems, go back and say, okay, here are my. And I really want to challenge you to try to find 100 things that the Lord has done for you in your life. If you are a person who has experienced God's grace, you can find 100 things, actually. And if you haven't, start writing it down. You can start tracking it now. And it could be small. It could be great. Hope in God causes us to remember. And most of all, remember we remember God's salvation. He doesn't just leave you to figure it out all for yourself. This is our great hope. Hope is not just some blind hope, a leap of faith, some wishful thinking. Hope is based on a historical reality. God the Son historically came to this world as we just celebrated on Christmas. He lived a historic life. In other words, a real life. And then for three years of ministry, going historically to the cross, dying for our sins, and then being historically raised from the dead. So that's a reality. And when that happens, we know that God then acted when we could not act he saved because he did the work there is no act here ultimately that this person the psalmist does that recognizes that it's his effort his energy that in the end makes it all work notice it really is he is the god of my salvation why so downcast o oh my soul you know because and the answer is he's my god my salvation. He's the one who did all the work. If you're like me, I've asked this question before, but how many of you have, I'm just curious, even in this room, how many of you have ever almost drowned in your life and had to be rescued? Anyone? One, two, three, four. Like was rescued five. Just in this room and me too. (laughs) Twice. (laughs) Oh, six. You know, that's a scary thought when you think about it that So many of us have almost drowned. I remember almost drowning. And I accidentally slipped into a pool. I didn't know how to swim. And when you don't know how to swim, what's your instinct when you fall into a pool? You start moving your arms and your legs to try to save yourself. But the more you try to save yourself, the deeper you go in. And it was hopeless. There was nothing I could do. Again the more I actually did something, the further I went down. It required someone jumping into the water and rescuing me. A friend of mine did that. And that's exactly what we have to think of when the psalmist says, my salvation, we are drowning in our sin, our lack of trust in God. And that drowning causes us to ultimately sink. Sink in every way. And there's no hope. The more you try by your efforts to actually dig yourself out, the deeper you go. We need someone to jump in and rescue us. And so when the antagonist to the psalmist said, asked, where is your God? The answer is our God is on a cross. We have to remember. That on that cross, you know, people ask the same thing. Matthew 27, 42-43. When Jesus was on that cross, people said, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now if He desires Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. It's the same question. Where is your God? That's the same question. It's ironic that that question is being asked when God is doing the saving. Notice also the very words that Jesus experienced in Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The abandonment. Jesus understands melancholy and sorrows and grievings and depressings because he experienced that to its fullest. No one will go through the melancholy that he went through. As Isaiah says, he was a man of sorrows. But because Jesus was mocked and forsaken, because he was this man of sorrows, because he was utterly rejected, he was abandoned, he bore the crushing weight of our sins, he bore our failures, our guilt, our shame. Because of all of that, he is able to be my salvation. He is my God. And so Jesus said in John 10:17, "For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again." When we wait on God, we wait on a God who knows our deepest innermost struggles. He never abandons us. we can trust Him. And we know that because Jesus was abandoned so that we would never be abandoned. Jesus was mocked so that we would never be mocked again. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the wonders of the cross. That in the midst of all of this waiting and uncertainty, during such times, we believe that you can still do the work of rescuing. And you are. Help us, O Lord, to trust you. I pray for those who have lost hope whose head is under a waterfall, who feels as though breaker upon breaker is just collapsing over their head and they feel overwhelmed. There's a sense of sorrows and grievings that just seem insurmountable. Father, that you would be their rescuer. Help them to remember all the blessings. Help them to see that you have not abandoned them. You have not forsaken them. That Jesus... Your own son was abandoned so that these, uh, th- that they, that all of us would know that you will never abandon us. And you made sure of that because you, your own son was abandoned. Your own son was mocked. So that we would never have to ask, where is our God? We know with assurance that you've rescued us. So I pray for strength. I pray for hope. May it be a living hope. And I pray that we would wait and trust on you. In Jesus' name we pray.